0: Exodus 32, beginning in chapter, or verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, "There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. The one that Aaron made.
1: Uh, if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you. We've been studying through um, Exodus for uh, over a year and a half now. Um, we've been parked in chapters 25 um, to 31 for uh, a number of weeks. Um, Exodus 25 to 31 c- contain God's instruction for Israel about worship. Okay, chapters 25 to 21. God gives his instructions to Moses for 40 days and 40 nights as he's atop Mount Sinai. And again, those are instructions for Israel's worship of the one true God. Exodus chapters 35 to 40 um, are the implementation of those commands regarding the construction of that place of worship, and that is the tabernacle. He's been receiving instructions of how God's people will worship him in and through Um, the, the forming of this tabernacle. Now, sandwiched in between the instructions for and the construction of the place of worship, known as the tabernacle, is this tragic story of sin, rebellion, and apostasy of Israel against the very principles that God was laying down for Moses atop Mount Sinai. While he's up atop Mount Sinai, they're down below, worshipping and forging, with their own hands, a golden calf. Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, answered the question of whether or not God would immediately destroy these people en masse as Israel's false worship created a breach, okay? A hole was punched in the wall of God's protection. And the wall of God's protection for his people that he delivered out of bondage and slavery from Egypt was the law of God itself. His law said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto thee any graven image any, of anything in heaven above or earth below or sea beneath the earth. For I, the Lord your God, am a, a jealous God. And this is fatherly jealousy. If you're a father or a mother, you can understand this kind of jealousy. If the, your children, rather than hugging and loving you, ran past you and went and hugged your neighbor. You'd be jealous. These are your children. A breach. In the wall of God's protection has been cut. God's wrath is seeping through the breach. And it's about ready to consume these false worshipers. They've created their own worship here. Their own style of worship. God is about to drown them in a wave of his wrath. Except... Moses, his chosen one, Moses, appointed by the will of God to be mediator between him and these people, serves as a protective measure. Moses steps into the breach. Moses steps in so as to stay the sword of the destroyer. The destroyer, according to 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, is destroyer with a capital G, D, who's God with a capital G. He's about to unleash his just punishment. And here, Moses steps in, we've seen this, Moses steps in to absorb the blow of God's hot, burning anger. He steps in and he makes an appeal. In verses 11 through 14, we looked at this last Lord's Day, he, he makes an appeal based on God's sovereign grace. He appeals to God's present grace. He appeals to God's reputation before the Egyptians. You mean, Lord, after all that you did to destroy Egypt, now they're going to watch you destroy your people in the wilderness? And then he appeals to God's covenantal faithfulness. Remember, Lord, your promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So by way of this mediation, by means of this work of intercession, Moses, standing in the breach comes one of the most incredible lines in all of Scripture. And that is verse 14. We looked at it last week. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, we were left last week with the awe and wonder of God pointing us to a greater Moses, a greater mediator, a a greater intercessor. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, he wrote this, 1 Timothy 2.5. The Apostle Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator to put between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Okay, that, beloved, those two verses, is a summary statement that defines the main point of the whole Bible. Okay, From Genesis to Revelation is the unfolding of that main point. Redemptive history is the revelation of Jesus Christ, God's one and only mediator. Jesus is the only one who stands between God, representing God to us, and representing us to God, having offered up all that God requires. That is a perfect holy life and a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners like me. Thus the reason Jesus said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. All temples don't point to heaven. All roads do not lead to God. Jesus is the only way. He alone lived the perfect, sinless life God requires. He alone upheld this broken law. He alone absorbed God's blow of just wrath in the place of sinners. He's the only Savior the world has. He's God's only mediator. He's the only one that stands between God and fallen men. He is it. He's the world's only Savior, the only rightful representative. He is the resurrected Christ. Jesus the Christ. It's not his last name. He's the anointed one. He is the promised one. And the reason he can do this is because he is the only one who is fully God and fully human. So therefore he lacks nothing. Now all of God's mediators in the Old Testament throughout redemptive history paving the way for him the one true mediator, they were inadequate. Every prophet, every priest, every king in the Old Testament who served in mediatorial roles between God and people, that was a good thing. That was a true thing. That was a thing prescribed by God himself, yet none of them individually nor all of them collectively could do what Jesus Christ, the one true incomparable mediator, has done. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus unites those three offices. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king of kings, and Lord of lords, there is no other. All Old Testament mediators only foreshadowed His perfect work. And they, the Old Testament mediators, served provisionally awaiting him. And that includes Moses. Who said this. Lord, they've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive them their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book. That you have written. Now, that's the course upon which we travel this morning. That's where we're going. The more we study Moses, the more we learn about Jesus. What did we just sing? Show us what? Show us who? Christ. Show us Christ through the scriptures. Genesis to Revelation. Okay, now to the text the main themes that circulate through verse chapters 32 to 34 are that of rebellion, mediation, and restoration. Highlighting, again, the position and the significance of Israel's mediator at this point in time in history, Moses. Now, we've learned about <clears throat> a couple weeks ago We learned that without this work of mediation by Moses, Israel does not survive this episode. They would have been turned to vapor. Okay, Are you with me? We've witnessed the utter rebellion of Israel. We've seen something of God's angry response towards his already delivered people. He initiated all this. He came to save them. He came to spare them. He came to deliver them. And then we studied last week, God's severity towards sin is mixed with his mercy. Mercy. That is, he loves to show mercy. If you missed that, you can listen online some other time. But today we see more of Moses' role as mediator, standing between God and his people. Now, beloved, again, this is not Moses attempting to convince God to be something he's not. He's not standing there trying to convince God to be merciful and compassionate. Okay, what this is, this is holy, righteous God who is mercifully and compassionately using Moses to mediate between himself and his rebellious people. Who appointed Moses? God did to do this work. He's not telling something to God God didn't know. Remember your covenantal faithfulness. God is the God who remembers. What we see here is Moses being conformed to the God who spared him. Taking on a heart of compassion for a rebellious people. So he's appointed by God to stand Between him, he is creator, he is redeemer, and these are the people who've sinned against him. And and again, he is prefiguring the mediator we need to represent us before God, and he is only one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So, this morning, as Moses descends, he's been up top Mount Sinai for 40 days, 40 nights, he's, he's about to descend, he's about to come down where this raucous people are exhibiting this evil. And we see four things. The first thing we'll see this morning is the indignation of Moses along with confrontation. He's going to confront his brother Aaron. As a matter of fact, Aaron's his big brother. So the first thing is indignation and confrontation. The second thing we'll see is the blame shifting that goes on when Aaron's confronted. Thirdly, we'll see a dividing line is drawn. And then finally, we'll see that there's an attempt for atonement to be made on behalf of the people. okay. So that's our course of action this morning. Number one, notice righteous indignation and confrontation. Um, this is God's mediator, Moses, verses 15 to 20. He's coming down from the mountain. He has the tablets of God in his hand. That is the Ten Commandments written on both sides. So obviously these, these stones, these, these uh, uh, tablets were manageable. It's not like you see in the cartoons. They're like you know, four foot high and weighing you know, 600 pounds each. These things are manageable. He's carrying them down. This is God's spoken word. God spoke the Ten Commandments from the top Mount Sinai. The people down below it says they trembled. And the scripture says that they were inscribed with God's finger. Okay, Well, God's non-corporeal. God is spirit. He doesn't have a finger. What this tells us is he supernaturally wrote them into the stone. And here he comes down with them in hand. Now, if you remember back in chapter 4... Moses goes halfway up the mountain with the seventy elders of Israel. Joshua was there, and some other priests are there uh, that will serve as priests eventually. And then Moses, we're told, ascends by himself to the top of the mountain. Now Joshua remains somewhere in between, the top and the bottom. And here, after forty days and forty nights, they're reunited as Moses is coming down. Joshua says, "There's a noise. There's a noise of war in the camp." It's either the sound of victory or the sound of defeat. Okay, but Moses says, Joshua, those are not war sounds, brother. It's neither the thrill of victory nor the agony of defeat that you hear. This is the sound of singing, and Joshua, it's not the kind of singing that you're going to be pleased with. I'll tell you that. Moses, remember, has already been told about the situation down below. Because God revealed it to him back in verses 7 and 8. So Moses is basically saying, it's not war. It's worse than that. We could only wish it was the cry of war. It's not. It's idolatrous, cultic, orgiastic activity. That's what it is, Joshua. You know, there's a difference between hearing about something and then hearing it for yourself. You know, you hear about car crashes. This morning I'm getting my car, or not this morning. That would be stupid to get your car washed this morning. <laughs> I was having my car washed over at this car wash this week. And you, you know that sound of screeching tires and then that <laughs> of metal crunching, airbags exploding? That's what I heard. It's one thing to hear about it. It's another thing to hear it for yourself. And then I had to go out and look because it was just feet away. And it was what it sounded like. So not only is there a difference between hearing about something and then hearing it for yourself, it's a whole other thing to see it for yourself. Moses already heard about it from God. He comes down, he's hearing it for himself. Once he gets down, he sees it. And it says, his anger burned hot. Where have we heard that? We heard that in verse 10. When God announced to Moses what was going on, it said, he was burning with anger against Israel. And again, never look at Israel as those people. We are those people. Amen? Amen? So Moses shatters the tablets. And that, beloved, is a prophetic act of judgment. Demonstrating what Israel has done. They have broken the law of God. They've broken covenant with God. In breaking the law, they were breaking the covenant. Now later, um, Israel will come to, to, to learn that you don't break the covenant. The covenant breaks you. Anyone who goes through this life and you say, When you die, are you sure you go to heaven? And they answer like this, Hey, I'm a good person. I'm doing my best. I'm a good person. The epitome of self-righteousness is to dare think that you're good enough to stand on your own merit before holy God. Christians aren't self-righteous. True Christians are recipients of sovereign grace. We know we can't stand. We need a mediator. We need an intercessor. We need a savior. That's not self-righteousness. That's righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. Because you'll find out if you think you can stand before God, you'll realize not only have you broken his law, his law breaks you. (laughs) You've broken one, you've broken them all. And if you say you haven't, you're a liar. Therefore, you're guilty of one. (laughs) Don't bear false witness, liar. You're guilty, man. So, looking at them here in their revelry, looking at them in their debauchery, bowing down before a stupid created image that they made with their own hands, Moses now sees with God's eyes, and he burns hot just like his Savior. This is not a temper tantrum. This is righteous indignation. Remember when God called Moses? What was Moses doing for 40 years, beloved? Watching sheep at this very mountain, by the way. And when God said, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to lead my people out of slavery... He said, but Lord, what am I going to say to these people that they believe that you spoke to me and called me to do this? He said, well, number one, I'll be with you. And the second thing is I'm going to give you a sign, okay? Look at Exodus 3, verse 12. I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that this is, it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God, me, on this mountain. Why? Why? Because he redeemed them. What do redeemed people do? Worship. What are you doing this morning, right now? You're worshiping God. Because when we worship, as we gather together, we preach his word, we pray his word, we read his word, we sing his word, or according to his word, this is what redeemed people do. So is it any surprise to see God's grief? Is it any surprise to see God's wrath as they dance in revelry around a golden, crafted, handcrafted calf? In in orgiastic kinds of activities? Is it any surprise to see God's appointed mediator sharing the same grief? No, it shouldn't be. The the Bible says Moses is the meekest man in all the earth. And what's he doing? He's shattering tablets and pulverizing a golden calf. Verse 20. Righteous indignation of the meekest man on the planet. He's righteously angered. Because the glory of God has been tarnished by the sin of God's people. And not only that. He's also angry because God's people are running headlong down the path that will destroy them. As I said last week, what do you do as a parent if your child picks up a rattlesnake and wants to play with it? Oh, honey, be careful. No, you act severely because you love your children. What idiot father would let his child play with a rattlesnake? You wouldn't. It leads to destruction. Destruction. Remember in John chapter 2, meek and mild, gentle Jesus walks into the temple. And the religious leaders of the day had turned temple worship into a high interest profit game. Jesus walks in. The temple was built for the glory and honor of God the Father. And they turned it into a place of commerce. Jesus, the scripture says, sees what's going on and he goes and makes a whip of cords and he lays it to the backs of those men and the animals and he chases them all out of the temple. He flips tables over. So there you have coins and people and animals scattered everywhere. And what was it all about? The scripture says, zeal for my father's house, Jesus said, has consumed me. Consume me. So Moses' anger, Jesus' anger, was the response of false, perverted, man-made worship. See the picture? You know, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. I don't know if I've ever truly been angry and not sinned. But I do know when I see false teachers taking God's word, twisting it to mean something else, it enrages me, man. When I see these so-called teachers and preachers twisting God's word so as to manipulate God's people, whether it's to line their pockets with cash, whatever it is, it angers me. And beloved, the problem today with much of the church is that they never get angry about anything. All doctrine is accepted. There is no rage. There is no indignation against false doctrine. Whatever comes down the pike, they accept. Why? Quite simply, most of them have been conditioned by years of very shallow, shallow teaching. Shallow. Church is about a mile wide and an inch deep when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to discernment. They lack discernment, and they're very superficial. They're non-critical. They're so open-minded to certain doctrines that their brains are falling out. Never be that open-minded. Test everything in light of the Word of God. Scripture. So many biblically illiterate people who claim to be Christians today They lack discernment. They'll say, to me, God is like... And then they just fill in the blank. They get in a Bible study. They read a scripture and they'll say this. Never go to a Bible study like this. Well, to me, this means this. Look, friends, it means one thing. Every verse means one thing. Okay, if I and another brother, if me and another brother have a difference eh, about what this means, one of us is wrong. Okay? It's not open for interpretation. So, notice, this is a worship-style issue that has angered God, has angered his mediator. And notice, we, we see descriptions and depictions of Israel's worship style. Notice, they're singing and dancing around a golden calf, and they become a laughingstock to surrounding nations. The scripture says they're out of control, dancing, singing, in allegiance to something they've created with their own hands. And such, beloved, is the chaos of idolatry. Now, dancing in and of itself is not a sin. Okay, do we know this? Okay, look, in the history of Israel, there was dancing at different times in worship. There was shouting. There was clapping. But all such worship was as prescribed by God it was orderly and it was controlled they were out of control now tabernacle and, and later temple worship was clear it was orderly because it was prescribed by god that means god designed it and he approved of it prescribed their liturgy was ordered okay we had a lit- we have a liturgy liturgy means order of service you, you've experienced our liturgy this morning. Coming up, called worship. We come up, we confess our sins, and we pray. We sing certain songs that glorify God, his work of redemption, and saving us sinners. In temple times, the liturgy uh, also consisted of choir directors, stringed instruments, but it was always an orderly liturgy. Not out of control. These people are out of control. Same pattern continues in the New Testament. We're called to gather together to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. God is not a God of confusion, the Bible says. God is not a God of disorder, the Bible says. And we're instructed to do all things decently and in order when we gather together. Now, that's quite a contrast compared to man-made impulsive disorder that you see in many churches today. Now, should worship be joyful? Yeah, it should be. When we understand redemption, it should drive us to want to worship God. And worship isn't just what we do here, beloved. Amen? We're living sacrifices because of the sacrifice that's been provided for us through Christ. Sometimes worship is loud, but it's always according to truth. It's always according to substance. It shouldn't be boring. As a matter of fact, as I used to tell my kids, "I'm bored." I said, "Well, then, don't be boring, <laughs> right? Use that on you. I'm bored, Dad. Don't be a boring person. If worship is boring by what we're singing and you're saved, then you're maybe perhaps a boring person. Don't be boring." We're to worship with reverence and awe, and it's to be orderly. It's never a breaking loose. You know, people who want to seek to find more, quote-unquote, excitement in worship, they're they're looking for more, quote-unquote, action. They are not seeking those things so as to worship God. They are seeking those things so as to serve themselves. Period. when christ's church has sensationalistic i don't megalomania type of ministries led by some egomaniac and they allow this kind of breaking loose or these spiritual leaders who say hey man we're we're, we're on the cutting edge and they tap into anything that the culture has and they call it worship it always results beloved in spiritually malnourished congregants who lack discernment. It's dangerous. Pretty soon, you know what you see? Poof! Out comes the golden calf. Word. Biblical worship, beloved, is never to be a gathering so as to spontaneously do just whatever comes out. You see some people acting like maniacs in certain denominations. In the middle of guys, this guy's sermon, someone gets up and runs a lap. And they, what was that guy doing? That was lunacy. They called it a victory lap. A victory lap. You just disrupted the Holy Spirit by disrupting the Word of God. It's never a breaking loose. These people are breaking loose. These people are, are out of control because they're all stirred up on emotion. You know, Anytime we're driven by emotion, anytime we're driven by feeling, nothing wrong with feelings because we are emotional people, amen? God has made us that way. You never, ever want to test truth by what you feel. Don't test by what you feel. That's a sign of immaturity. It's actually, the Bible calls it to be childish. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That is to say, our feelings are not dependable, beloved. The, the Bible says in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitfully what? Wicked. Our only defense against fickle feelings and emotions, which lead to false doctrine and man-made worship like this, is to measure those sentiments, measure those sensations, against the measuring rod of Scripture. It's all scripture. This scripture-based church. Paul wrote to Timothy, said this. So Paul, the seasoned saint, the apostle, is grooming his understudy Timothy. He writes this: "Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word." Okay, why is that necessary? Notice, because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And, and, and as a matter of fact, services like this will drive them nuts. But they have itching ears, so they go out and they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Why do so many people follow false teachers? Because it suits their passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Israel just heard days before this God, God's words spoken from Sinai. And they're breaking loose creating their own worship style. It's sad to see churches in America weakening as pulpits become platforms for storytelling and entertainment. It's a sad day. You know, Holy Spirit-led worship is Scripture-centered. Where the Word of God dwells, worship swells. It's Colossians 3.16. Look at it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, what? Richly. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With what? Thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's what it is to be Holy Spirit filled, by the way. If you look at uh, Ephesians 5.17, you'll see the command, be filled with the Spirit. It results in this. It's the same thing as being, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The results the same. Admonishing one another, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You know, beloved, that, that is to say, when we gather for Lord's Day worship on Sunday, if we come with the mentality that this is simply a time to be lifted up on the crest of emotional hype, if that's our view, and, and it's only to experience a tingle in the tummy, you know, that stirring up or overflowing of the heart emotionally might perhaps provide you two or three hours of upliftedness when you leave here. But when you have an engaged mind in service that lays hold of God's truth, that will help you keep even keeled when the storm hits on Wednesday. When the storm hits in two weeks, three weeks, as you sit under the word of God with an engaged mind, it's more than just an emotional activity you'd be able to stand instead of let loose like Israel. So here, we should be reminded, as the book of Hebrews says, we worship God with reverence and awe. For our God is a what? Consuming fire. The same God before whom Moses has the golden calf pulverized. Verse 20. And notice this. Moses doesn't ask the people if it's okay. Okay, did you catch that? Okay, no survey is taken here. There's no popular vote. He grinds this thing to dust. And that tells us, beloved, idols, be they physical or mental, always take up residence in your heart. Ezekiel, God said to Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 3, Son of man, these men have taken their idols where? into their hearts. They own you. And idols, therefore, are not meant to be managed. They are meant to be destroyed. And thus Moses pulverizes this thing and turns it to dust. Now, he crushes it, we read, and he throws it in the water and he makes the people drink it. Now, Deuteronomy... Uh, chapter 9 tells us that uh, it was thrown into the water that was a brook that ran down from this mountain. So this is a very dramatic scene, and it's causing them to taste the bitter consequence of their sin. That's what this is. So ingestion of the ground-up calf seems to have caused indigestion of the people, and perhaps is the plague that God spread among the people in verse 35. A lot is said about the water... In the, in the gold dust and all that, but it's simply this, beloved. It is a sober depiction of the bitterness of sin and the debauchery of false worship. That's what we see. Their focus is no longer a right focus. They're out of focus. Okay, Israel's out of focus. And out of focus worship, beloved, devoid of substance, results in three things that we see in this text. The first thing is the corruption of the people. The second thing we see is the inciting of God's anger. And the third thing we see is the scoffing and mocking of the world. You know, unbelievers watch these lunatic televangelists on TV. You know what they do? They laugh. They think that's Christianity. The surrounding nations were mocking Israel at this point. Now, in contrast... Very focused, properly focused worship that's biblical is God-glorifying. God's glorified. The people are purified. The fellowship is edified. And the world is correctly evangelized. Amen? The gospel is not Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life. You're hearing the gospel this morning through and through by God's grace. Okay, notice now this indignation this confrontation leans to, to the result is blame shifting okay notice this okay moses comes down the mountain aaron is his older brother and in verses 21 to 24 moses addresses aaron and he actually gives aaron the benefit of the doubt if you notice this here moses says aaron they had to have done something incredibly harsh for you to do this i mean would they threaten to kill your family i mean aaron did they put a knife to your throat Did they tie you down? Did they torture you? In other words, Moses is saying, Aaron, surely you did not volunteer to go along with this. Please, Aaron, tell me. Notice, Aaron, who had greater responsibility, is held to greater what? Accountability. Notice verse 25. Aaron let them break loose verse 35 this calf is the calf that Aaron made you know James chapter 3 verse 1 says let many of you not become teachers in the church knowing that we will receive a stricter what judgment for this very reason there will be held to a stricter accountability and here rather than confess and repent adam shifts the blame This reminds us of the very first sin of the very first man, Adam. Lord, it was the woman you gave me. She made me eat it. So ultimately, he's blaming God. Eve said, you know, the serpent, what? Deceived me, shifting the blame. That's what we do, we shift the blame. I'm guilty of that, I don't know how many times over. (laughs) So it's as though he's saying this. They wanted me to do this. I had no other choice, Moses. I had no choice here. But Aaron's excuse is as lame as it sounds. Moses, it just happened. You know, I had him take off the gold and we put it in the fire and poof! Out came the golden calf. It's ridiculous. My excuses are no less ridiculous, as I said a few weeks ago. Any excuse I make my sin is no less ridiculous than poof out came the calf honey (laughs) now when Moses recalls this incident to the next generation of the Israelites before they enter the promised land 40 years after this he, he, he makes this very clear in Deuteronomy 9 verse 20 he said the Lord was so angry with Aaron on that day he was ready to destroy him but I Moses I prayed for him too This is heavy, heavy duty. See, this is the nature of sin, beloved. (laughs) And our excuses for it are just as sorry before a holy God. Look, and I'm telling you this. If you're not in Christ, run to Christ and be saved. Run to Christ. We as Christians are always running to Christ. We're always running back to the cross. Metaphorically speaking, amen? Now, due to God's grace upon grace, Aaron actually will become Israel's high priest. When God was going to destroy him, he he makes him high priest. Now, he should have stood strong. He ought to have said no. He ought to have said, I will not, and you will not, Israel. You know, church leaders are responsible to lead God's people according to his word, not the words of the people. Amen? Amen. You know, some church leaders actually survey the congregation. They'll include unbelievers, and they'll ask this, how would you prefer service to be like? Never follow a leader like that. Never follow elders like that, who are carried about by every wind of doctrine, who tap into anything that is culturally popular. No. You don't want church leaders who are weak. You don't want church leaders who are intimidated to compromise. Because the people demand this. Never. Notice next. We have indignation, confrontation, blame shifting. Notice next. A dividing line is drawn, verses 25 to 29. Notice God's mediator, Moses, not only confronts Israel of idolatry, he also delivers God's word unashamedly. Thus says the Lord, he says. So here now, Moses who actually wrote this years later, uh, in case anyone's forgotten the reality of the situation after hearing Aaron's ridiculous response to this, the Lord's reminding us, don't forget, readers, the people they're out of control. They're out of control. Moses says, "Lo, Not, notice, it's time to choose." Line up. You're going to worship God's way or you're going to worship him your way. Line up. Which side? And notice that the tribe of Levi, Levi, that was the tribe that Moses was from, um, they come to him in repentance because remember, everyone in this was participating. They were all participating. Obviously, they repent when he says line up. They gather around and notice Moses doesn't say here, fellas, Let's go preach a message of love. He doesn't say, let's go preach positive affirmation. This is just the text. Tough text, yeah, but it's the text. Notice he says, verse 27, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate. Remember, they're in tents, so he's saying, Go from tent to tent. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. What he's saying is this any who haven't repented, who are still caught up in this, kill them, and that day 3,000 die. And that is those identified as idolaters. Now, these could have been ringleaders of the whole situation. We're not told. It could have simply been those who are unrepentant, still giving themselves to unbridled licentiousness. Who's on the Lord's side, he says? The Levites say, we are, Moses. He says, okay, God is saying, uh, if you're going to show yourself faithful, then I want you to go from tent to tent, and even if your own brother or your best friend is still involved in this and are unrepentant, kill him. Now, many modern readers of our day have difficulty justifying this action. And as I said a couple weeks ago, beloved, and I say this with all due respect, if you have problems with this, then you don't probably understand God's holiness. And if you don't understand God's holiness, you can't understand his wrath. And if you don't understand his wrath, there's no way you'll understand his love, grace, and mercy because there's no way that you'll properly see the cross. Because what Jesus bore on the cross was the unmitigated wrath of sinners like me who deserve this punishment. That's love. And don't miss the fact on this day In his wrath, God showed great mercy, didn't he? Because only a small percentage perished. There's about a million and a half, two million Israelites running around here. Only 3,000 died. So notice, don't, don't try to whitewash this. This was a terrible loss. But the Lord restrained his hand of judgment, did he not? Yes, he did. Now, why don't we kill people today for the sake of orthodoxy? Do we take the sword out today if someone doesn't believe we lop their head off? No. Because since Christ has come, we're not permitted to kill anyone as a means of preserving orthodoxy. Then why this? Well, this is under the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, God's people were a civil government that was a theocracy. Therefore, capital punishment, the sword of capital punishment, was extended to the covenant community. Now, Since Christ has come, he's fulfilled the covenant. Amen? He's fulfilled the covenant, so the sword of capital punishment has been delegated to the state. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. They're now delegated with authority to carry out capital punishment, not Christians. Amen? Amen? We bear a sword, but it's a different sword. What is it? It's this sword. I'm wielding it right now. And sometimes it's more painful for some people than having their their side thrust with a physical sword. (laughs) Amen? So this is a call to come out, beloved. Moses says, come out, and, and here it is. Identify yourself with the mediator that I've provided, and if you don't, you'll die. Who's a greater mediator than Moses? Jesus. If you want the covering... That will cover you from God's wrath, you must come in, up in and under His only mediator, Jesus, who bore the wrath, or you'll suffer the just punishment due to you. Jesus talked about a sword. He said this. And to this very day, God calls us to this kind of allegiance. Jesus said this. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. Metaphorically speaking, beloved. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What what, What did a cross represent to first century people? Death crucifixion see I've been crucified in Christ it's no longer I who live but Christ who what who lives in me who lives in you you're going to see two people be baptized today they're identifying in this fact they've died in Christ they've been raised in Christ they've been washed anew crucified in Christ Jesus cried out if you want to know God you have to look at me if you want to know God you must come to me For I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the the Father. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Law can't save you. Being a good person can't save you. It'll crush you. The law breaks. The law destroys. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, who's ever not with me is what? Against me. Look, if you're undecided for Christ, you're decided against Christ. To be undecided is to be decidedly against him. There's no middle ground, man. So the call is the same today. It's allegiance to Jesus Christ and what he's offered us salvation. It's fundamental loyalty being expressed in Exodus here as well as the words of Jesus and Matthew. Now, Jesus does not mean we should hate our, believing, our unbelieving family members. Amen? It doesn't mean that. What it means is that when you make a stand for Christ, you, t- for instance, if, you're, if you come from a Muslim family and you come to realize the truth by God's grace and you make a stand and you get baptized, they may disown you and they may even kill you. Jesus is saying, if you love them more than me when I call you to myself, you're not worthy of me because I divide. I'm divisive. The sword we bear, it's the word of God. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. As I said, that's the sword being wielded right now. And it can be painful. And healing. It's a sword that cuts. And it's like a doctor's precise tool that works to heal. It's the sword of the spirit. Okay, notice finally, an attempt to make atonement. Um, If you're visiting here, we're blessed you're here. And if you're thinking this is the longest sermon I've ever heard in my life, we do this every week. Every week. Because God's people love His Word, so we preach the Word. And I'm almost done. Notice an attempt to make atonement. Verses 30 to 35. Moses responds, notice he does not soften the blow. He does not soften the situation. He does not water this down. He calls it what it is, verse 30, you have sinned a great sin. As I said a few weeks ago, be careful of, of, of uh, uh, um, Christian cliches. In the eyes of God, all sin is sin. Be careful. He calls this a great sin. Now, every single sin Deserves God's wrath and justice. But not every sin is simply sin. This is a worship issue. This is a false worship issue. And he said, you've sinned a great sin. But notice, he doesn't stop there. He says this. I'm going to go back up to the Lord and perhaps. Did you get that? You see that word, perhaps? Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Here's a man who's been conformed to the image of God. 40 years watching sheep. He's grown in mercy. He's grown in understanding grace. He's grown in this. And he wants to try to make atonement. Perhaps. Atonement. At one with. If you're in Christ, you've been forgiven, you've been cleansed, and you you are now at one with your maker. Through the Redeemer. Atonement. God requires blood atonement. So, notice, he says perhaps. now. Moses has already witnessed the first Passover before they came out of Egypt, slay an innocent lamb, put its blood on the doorpost and the lintel, kind of like a cross, right? And God's judgment, if the blood is covering the house, will pass over you. Any house that didn't have blood covering? Whoosh, first, the eldest child in his home died. Now, he's witnessed that. He's received instructions for the tabernacle, how God will provide atonement through the priesthood and all that. But he's not sure how it's going to work itself out yet. He just came down from the mountain, right? So notice. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people sinned a great sin. Now, Lord. Th- 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 these are broken words of a broken man. But it's almost like this. Well, you forgive their sin, but you know, if not, Lord, please blot me out. Make an exchange for me. Blot me out of your book. What is that? Well, it was common in the ancient world, as well as for Israel, for kings to register their citizens. When you were born, you were written down in the book. When you died, your name was?
0: blotted out.
1: Okay, so this is like Psalm 139. It's simply a register of, of God's people, and he's saying, Lord, just blot me out. If you're going to kill them, kill me with them. Or better yet, just exchange me for them. Okay. Now, also, some argue that it's referring to God's book of life in which all believers' names are listed. Either way, the point is this. Moses was willing to die for the people as what? Mediator. Pointing to Jesus, whoever said that. So Moses was beginning to see the need for God's requirement for salvation, which is this. The need for what? substitution. The need for substitution. So God had said to Moses in verse 10, remember, I'm going to consume Israel. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses responds, Lord, forgive them. Don't destroy them. Hear my prayer. Exchange their sentence. Take my life. Notice we're seeing how the mediator identifies with his people. You get it? See how Jesus identifies with his church? So God, notice, does not accept Moses as a substitute for Israel. He doesn't accept. We're not told why directly here, but the rest of Scripture is quite clear. Moses couldn't die for the people's sins because he too, what? Is a sinner. He needs a substitute. The Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God's perfect standard. The wages of sin is death. We've all earned our wage. We're all going to die. You've earned your wage. You will die, and then you will stand before Him. But... It doesn't end there. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Moses himself needed a substitute. Moses needed a greater Moses. Moses, the mediator, needed a greater mediator. And again, we're back to the main point of the Bible. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. All who believe. Sent into the world as planned in the fullness of time. Look at Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive what? Adoption. You're not born into the family of God. You have to be adopted through faith and trust in his one mediator, Jesus Christ. So Moses provides a foretaste of Jesus Christ saying, Father, This is Jesus. Take my life. Do not lay Susanna's sins to her account. I'll take it. I'll take it. Judge me for it. The guilt that is Nicole's, judge me for it. I I mentioned Susanna and Nicole because they're going to be baptized in a minute. and They're about ready to go get prepared to do that right now. You see, what Moses could not do was provide substitution for the people of God. Jesus Christ could. Jesus Christ did, and he has, such is the glory of the new covenant. Amen? Such is the glory of the new covenant. I deserve what Israel deserved. You, whether you admit it or not, deserved what Israel deserved, and it was God's destruction. Period. Period. Christ invited it upon himself. Christ experienced it himself. He endured it. That is God's punishment. That's what the cross was. He was bearing God's judgment against sin and the sinner. So all who put their faith and trust in Christ, their sins were placed there. They get in exchange, his righteousness, because he was a perfect sacrifice, never sinned. That's the great exchange. He took the curse upon himself. He drank, beloved, the bitter waters of judgment so that we might taste blessing. And here's the blessing. This is it right here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you're already condemned, the scripture says. So the call is to do this. Repent, which means change your thinking. You're not good enough to stand before God. You believe there is no God? The Bible says you're a fool. You're going to stand before him. You've earned your wage. You will die. So Jesus says, come to me. Whoever is on the Lord's side, take a line. Come to Christ. How do you come to Christ? Not on your feet. Not on your feet. You come in your heart. You come to Christ by faith, entrusting yourself fully and completely to him. That simple? Yeah, it's so simple. That's what grace is. But what do I have to do? Clean myself up? You can't. You're already doomed. You come by faith and receive his grace, which means unmerited favor, and the Bible says you shall be saved. When people do that, they get baptized, identifying in the finished work of Jesus Christ.